History, Lecture 55, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We, uh, we are meeting various important personalities near the end of Bayez Shani and um, winding down. There is a story in the, the Gemara Musachim that also paints a picture of the times as they become more complex. A certain Aramean non-Jew sees what the Jews are doing, and last week we talked about the, uh, the, the instance, the, pre- the prevalence of conversion. The people are drawn to Judaism, to Torah, it's really attracting them. So in this case, <coughs> the Armenian is not motivated per se to get closer to Baruch or to Mitzvos, but he sees the Korban Pesach and he feels like a steak dinner. So um, he pretends to be Jewish and actually eats from the Korban Pesach in Yerushalayim. And what becomes evident when he returns to Bavel is that it wasn't so much for the steak as much as for the gotcha, kind of a feeling of got those Jews, those fools. And he boasts when he comes back um, to this hometown of what's called the Tzivin in Bavel. And the local rub there is Rav Yehuda ben Becerra, who's not the same ben Becerra as we met Hillel's uh, predecessors, the ben Becerra. It's a different family, apparently a common name. And, uh, and he, he, Rabbi Yudah ben Becerra tells him, oh, what did you have? And he hears the man's story and he said, they took advantage of you. And the Aramean, the, the, uh, the Aramean is, is, is dumbfounded. Dumb he doesn't know what, what that, nonplussed and dumbfounded. What, is, what does this mean? And he said, um, did you eat some from the aliyah, from the tail of the animal? And he said, no, they didn't share that part. And so Rabbi Yehuda tells him, that's the best, tastiest, fattest part of the animal. You should go back there and get your money back, or at least tell them that you want yours. You want your fair share. So he, gets, he comes back, and he goes to the uh, local authorities by the base of Mikdash, and he said, you didn't give me. I went all the way, and you didn't. He tells this whole story. He said, Rabbi Yehuda and Becerra told me to tell you that I get some aliyah. And the Jews are listening to this. They get, he wants his, his portion of, of, of the tail meat. And they're listening, and they, they, they kind of take counsel. They whisper each other, does he realize that this is usher? It was usher to do this. But if he's telling us that Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra is telling us specifically, telling him specifically to get that, and that's his instruction from him, they recognize it as a coded message that this guy's not really a Jew, and they check him out, and they realize he's a guy, and he's Chayav Misa and, uh, and, and for, for, for doing everything that he does, and uh, they kill him. And Nachri is Chayav Misa for Gezel. One of the seven mitzvahs B'nai Noach. He's, he's, a, he's a thief. The uh, deterioration of the times has lots of different manifestations. We find at this time in history, famously, that there is an outbreak in lawlessness in general. Murder becomes a phenomenon. That's why that leads to the cessation of the biblical practice of what's called the Egla Arufa, when a dead body is found between two places and it's not clear where he comes from. There is an elaborate ceremony procedure that, that try to try to um, do some kapara, some kind of atonement on behalf of Klal Yisrael and the elders from the local, the closest town take responsibility at a certain level and they perform this ritual of the, the, the Egla Arufa uh, in, in a... Uh, by a Nachal Eitan, by a deep rocky riverbed, and um, they can't do this anymore because the dead bodies proliferate. There are so many of them, there are too many of them, they can't do this. The Sanhedrin, we find, is powerless to actually put murderers on trial because the murderers bribe the local Roman governors, called the Nitzivim, uh, and so the Sanhedrin is can't really do anything because the Nitzvah will overturn whatever psak, um, whatever sentencing they come out with. They make it, making a mockery of the whole procedure. So they, um, the way that they can administer the death penalty, the capital punishments, dinin fashos, is by sitting where they're supposed to sit in what's called the lishka sagazis, the chamber of hewn stone in the compound of the temple itself. And if you remember our tour a few weeks ago, I told you I'd be referring a lot to the tour from a few weeks ago. It, keeps, it comes up a lot. So if you can picture the model of the Besa Mikdash, so in the area, not across from where the Mizbeach was in what's called the Azara, sat the Sanhedrin in the Lishkas Agazis. And um, capital punishments can only be done if the Sanhedrin Gedola, the highest of the high courts, um, is sitting there. When there's no Sanhedrin Gedola sitting in its proper location, they can't try capital crimes nor can anybody else outside of Yerushalayim. And we know that other kinds of Sanhedrins 
could do, could adjudicate at Dina and Fashos, and now they effectively, for the last time in history, they exile themselves to a place that in the Gemara is called Chanus, although uh, one year is Chanuyos, uh, something we just had in uh, Opan, we just, we just learned about this, um, store, some kind of a store, storefront, um, and therefore, there's no more Dina Nefashos. We're going to see uh, a famous exception to that rule, but as a general rule, they, do, they no longer try capital crimes. That year, it's 40 years before the Chorban Beis Amikdash, which would be approximately 30 in the Common Era. And the Sanhedrin begins the first of what's called the Ten Exiles. Now, you guys have all been with me th- this whole time since the beginning of the year together. Most of you. Most of you were with but, but you were here. you were here already by this point. If you remember, at the end of the, of the first temple, the Shekhinah did the same thing. In this case, the Shekhinah exiled itself ten phases before the final destruction of the temple. Do you remember what the purpose of that was? It's, kind of, it's like Noah building his teva. What was the purpose of the long, drawn-out process of building the teva? The Hopefully, people... Right, people should see Noah doing this and ask him, hey, Noah, what's up with that? And how are you doing that? And that they should hear that the world is about to end and perhaps that would prompt them to make tshuva. And it's the same idea here. If they feel the, in the first temple case, when they feel the absence of the shechina, they might be hopefully prompted to tshuva. It didn't work then. Now, since the shechina's presence is not as immediately felt, even though it was there in the second temple, now the Sanhedrin, goes on 10 progressive exiles. At each point, when it's exiled, the Jewish people, the cue for us was, hey, let's make tshuva. And again, we'll find that we will not, uh, we will not do that. But the 10 exiles of the Shechina, of the, excuse me, the Sanhedrin, will, uh, will take place. The first again is this place called Chanus or Chanuyos in, Yush, um, in Yerushalayim. Um, we don't know where this is. But maybe if you're really nice to me, I, I'll take you to the most logical candidate uh, sometime this year. It's one of the most thrilling places I can take you in Yerushalayim, but it's a little tricky now with the violence and the um, hostilities as they are. It's right in the heart of the era, of the Muslim quarter in the old city. So uh, maybe the times will permit and we'll be able to go there. We didn't do it at the beginning of the year, did we, by chance? The Klein Cell, did we go there? I don't think so. I want to take you to, the, to a place called the Cotton Market, which is a good guess. I don't think we know for sure, but it's a reasonable guess that this is where Chanus was. From Chanus, the, the um, Sanhedrin then went to the city, the general city, a location somewhere within Yerushalayim. From there it went to Yavne, famous Yavne. Uh, that was all in the same year, 30 years before the Chorban. It was 40 years before the Chorban, in the year 30 of the Common Era. And then it'll make the following moves. It'll go to Usha, in the north, and then back to Yavna, and then back to Usha, Shvaram, Beit Sharim, Tzipori, and finally, where was the last place of the Sanhedrin? And I'll give you a hint, we did, as Yeshiva, go there this year. Tiveria. Tiveria is the last place of the Tiveria, of the, of the Sanhedrin, and according to our tradition, it'll be the first place when the Sanhedrin comes back, that the Sanhedrin will, will, uh, will, will be reinstated. Um, there is a group, there have been many attempts through history to re-state, reinstate the uh, Sanhedrin, much like there have been attempts to reinstate Smicha and the Nisius. Um, uh, we'll talk about those. There's one that happened as recently as, I think, 2004. There's a group that calls themselves the Sanhedrin that it actually has its base in Tiveria, the city of Tiveria in the north, um, and they're recognized by themselves as being the Sanhedrin. Yeah, yeah, they don't necessarily have wide, widespread following. Uh, certainly not among, even though they claim to have supported the Dolly, but um, no, no, but they're recognized by themselves, and they are a phenomenon in themselves, the Sanhedrin and Sanhedrin. Uh, like, do uh, financial matters go to them? Uh, I don't know if they raise money. They probably do with evangelical Christians. No. They tend to give money to these no, things uh, like this. No, financial court cases. That's not that big. Money. They don't do anything. No, they do. And to their credit, some of the people who sit on the on today's so-called Sanhedrin say that they don't presume to be the leading scholars of our generation. But until the until this until it's fully recognized, they're placeholders holding the seats for the true Gedolim. So they're not presumptuous in that way, assuming that they are the Gedolim Israel. But then they do uh, say that they are the new Sanhedrin, and that much has not been recognized, at least not. Wait, not what's that? Sanhedrin. Come on down. <laughs> I, 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 
It's a whole discussion. Whole discussion. The whole discussion with the Sanhedrin. We're talking about the Sanhedrin. And 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 well, I mentioned the 2004 attempt to have another Sanhedrin. That's what we're talking about because um, we just now about about the year 30 of the Common Era when the Sanhedrin exiles itself from the Lishkas Agassiz into Chanus and begins the first of ten uh, successive exiles. Um, now we should be bothered. We want there to be a human high court to, uh, to keep a system of justice in the world. Not that we understand that that's where justice emanates, that it's from there that justice emanates, because we realize only a Kaddish Baruch Hu is the Dayan HaEmes. The true and, and, and decisive judge is, is Hashem. We just do what we can to maintain law and order so that there's no anarchy. Um, but people then are concerned, and I mentioned this in Morning Shear, that there's a concern, hey, wait a minute, if you don't have the Deen of the Dalit Misos Basti, the four kinds of capital punishment, well then, you know, how will there be justice in the world? How will people who really deserve to die by Skila or Srefa or, or, or Herig or Henek, how will they get their proper punishment? So the Gemara in Sanhedrin famously tells us, not a problem. Kaddish Baruch Hu has many shlichi and has many tools at his disposal. So a person who's, let's say, subject to the uh, burning, death by burning, can be bitten by a snake, can fall into a fire. A person who gets skila can also can be uh, can be uh, can be crushed, trampled by an a, a, an animal, or fall from a rooftop. There are ways that we have our ways of arranging things, right? There, 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 there we have we have means. Um, Somebody who's high of hariga, which is by sword, death by sword, so the bandits or the kingship could decapitate him. A uh, person who dies from strangulation could drown in a river or die from disease that uh, suffocates him. Um, in general, though, anarchy, lawlessness will grow in the, in, 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 uh, across Judea, across the Jewish world. One finds also around this time the Mishnah and Sota cites the terrible instance, increased instance of adultery. Men and women are less faithful. I mean, the times are times of depravity, the Roman influence, the Greek slash Roman influence, because you remember the Roman civilization is heavily influenced by Greek culture, and so the depravities of Aesop, the licentiousness, the wanton behavior is becoming more and more a reality among the Jews as well, and we see adultery increases, and they stop administering what's called the May Sota, which doesn't mean club soda, uh, May Sota, you remember, is uh, the special water is the special water concoction that the woman accused of having yichud, being secluded in a room with a man, and the husband warns her, and she's secluded in the room anyway, um, to test to see if she's been unfaithful to her husband, and she denies it. They they administer these waters. The waters in, contain a parchment with Hashem's holy name written on it, and of course the name gets erased in the process. Uh, and if she's indeed guilty, the Torah and then Chazal elaborate on the very grisly, gruesome death. Uh, her belly and her thighs all fall away. And she, by the way, bo- both she and her adulterer, her, her adulterous uh, friend out there, both die simultaneously. She drinks the water, but miraculously, the the other guy out there also dies. The same hor- horrible death. If she's innocent, she didn't do anything wrong, then she's promised to have a baby. And you remember who, who Hana, right, very good. Hana, Hana was the one who said that, uh, you know, she, she made a deal with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and a Kaddish Baruch Hu listened to her and gave her, gave her a child, gave her Shmuel. In any case, they stop administering this water because the water only works if the husband who warns the wife himself is faithful in the marriage. But if he's completely immoral, then the water won't work. So what started happening was the lawlessness and the unfaithfulness was so widespread that husbands indeed brought their accused unfaithful wives, but when the wives would drink the water, the water didn't work, not because they weren't guilty, but because their husbands were guilty. So under those circumstances, things didn't work, and then it was terrible. Then it was a Hashem. Because people who knew that she was absolutely an adulteress and she was guilty as charged, watch these holy waters with Hashem's name erased not take effect and they said oh this doesn't work it led to apostasy it led to, led to people going off the derech uh, for watching this um, and, uh, and other problems as well so they stopped, they stopped the, whole, the whole procedure the Sanhedrin's powers now we find are reduced the Romans certainly are in, are in charge and they, they intimidate the, the Sanhedrin um, with this another famous bit and also from the Gemara and Sota Batla Shira mi beis hamishtaos. 
Um, they now make a decree forbidding people to sing or play instruments at a, any celebration. The base of Ishtaus, places where, where, where sudas take place. Um, because now without a Sanhedrin, people are less inhibited. And uh, yeah, one thing leads to the other. They start singing some songs. And sometimes they insert certain uh, raunch, raunchy lyrics. And one thing leads to the other. And uh, without this, they make a decree against this. I mentioned before that music um, since this time has been usher. But not, and then we have to learn. There's a whole, there's a whole topic on the, uh, a whole, whole discussion in the halacha, and we're lenient with such things, both a cappella music and instrumental music. We could be lenient, but in theory, at least, there's a problem from this time in history. Uh, we know also around this time, also around 40 years before the Chorban, the wonders of the base of Mikdash decrease. Uh, famously, there used to be a fire on the altar, on what's called the Maracha on the altar, that um, used to increase on its own. It was a nace, one of the famous nacees in the base of Mikdash. It was until 40 years before the end. From that point, the fire on the Maracha was there, but it didn't increase on its own. Oh, and then it did. There used to be, in the Second Temple period, the fire on the Maracha that increased on its own, and from this point, it no longer does that. Oh, no, There's so fire there, but it doesn't increase. So wasn't there something that, there was some fire in the base of somewhere that wasn't in the Second Temple, that was in the First Temple? That was the, the, um, the, 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 the near Tomid you're thinking of. That's, that's different. Does that mean, like, like, uh, like, you know, what is it? Salamanders, yeah. No, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. Make it, make it quick, quick though. If you keep a fire burning for seven years straight, yeah. Then creature uh, not called the spirit of the salamander comes out. Yeah. And if you, I don't know, whether it's a chef or a kill it or whatever, right? And you bathe in this blood, your skin basically becomes fabric. It's uh, it's directly from the Gemara at the very end of. Uh, of which Gemara? Moed Katan. Moed Katan talks about such a thing. And okay. The, the, literally the last stop, the last. Uh, what you're just connecting because of miracles and fire? No, because that's true. How many salamanders probably came out? I can't vouch for any such things. Don't know. I would be, I would be cautiously, I'd be wary about such a thing. Maybe I'm not saying it's not true, but um, there are certainly we live in times where there are plenty of charlatans out there like to make these things up. So be suspicious. Um, there, the Nir Maravi, the western candle, um, used to stay lit after the other flames of the menorah went out, and now that no longer happens miraculously. Um, it used to be that the Kohanim, all the Kohanim pronounced Hashem's 12-letter holy name. We don't know what it is today, and because of the Pritzus, the, the bad Kohanim that existed, now only a very elite small group of Kohanim uh, pronounce it. Everybody else just said the four-letter name, the more common one that we do know. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who's increasingly uh, the, 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 the prominent rub of the days, um, he, it used to be that the Heichal doors, Heichal is the temple itself, the Kodesh, so the Heichal doors used to open on their own, and he stops that. And this, and 40 years before the Horban, Rabbi Tzadok, one of the great uh, righteous figures, Rabbi Tzadok, like his name, um, begins to fast every day for 40 years, anticipating the Chorban is on its way and trying to, if it was fast in his tefillah, to prevent it. Um, and we'll see what happens with Rabbi Tzadok too. Interesting figure. Anyway, this is the beginning of his fast. Now, one year, the Romans don't like the Jews, Esav, Sonas, Yaakov, Kamenus, the Natsiv, the governor, remember the Natsivim now are really prominent, the local governor on, the, uh, on behalf of the Roman Empire, decides to start up with the Jews, and he goes in the area of the Temple Mount itself, in what's called the Stav Malchuti, the royal portico, which, can you picture the Temple Mount, can you picture the Second Temple, yeah. where the Al-Aqsa Mosque stands today in the southern area, was a place like bleachers, or the, the non-Jews used to go and watch the, like a spectator sport used to watch the abode of the base of Mikdash, so Kamenus, the Natsiv, walked <laughs> up there and took off all of his clothes and paraded around naked, knowing that this was clearly offensive to Jewish sensibilities. We are people of tznius, of modesty, and that's, that's out, outrageous. The Jews, of course, protested, and it, and it leads to a massacre. 
he was starting up. He wanted to, he wanted to massacre the Jews, and that was how he prompted them. Uh, in another episode, we find a Roman soldier going in and taking a Sefer Torah, tearing it to shreds. We have many, remember we've had our, our old enemies, the Shomronim. The Shomronim now Hellenized, attack the Jews. There are episodes of Jews counterattacking. It doesn't end well, however it comes out. What you have to be picturing in this, er this period leading up to the Great Rebellion from 66 to 73 in the Common Era was lots of little rebellions. Lots of little fires, each one sometimes, each put out individually on their own, but taken together uh, a, a situation of, of increased uh, war, battles, conflict, with not only between the Jews and the Romans, but all the various factions, because you got a whole motley mixed group here in Eretz, in Eretz Judea, who definitely do not all get along together. Now... All this is antagonizing the Jews. The, oh, after, after all this, the Romans then will take advantage of both the Shomronim and the Jews. They don't like either one, and they'll move in to do another massacre and many such episodes. The, um, throughout most of these uh, increased hostilities, Chazal, the rabbis, try to warn the Jews against violence. They, they preach restraint. They say that, um, that vigilance will not will not help the Jews. We win, as we always have had in history, one of our major themes throughout this class, we win by surviving, not by being tougher, not by being uh, Rambo. Um, their impact is decreasing. People are not listening to them. The Jews are getting more antagonized, and as such, are becoming more vigilant. But the rabbis <coughs> are saying no. Uh, do you remember where else we've seen this quality? By just don't be, don't be openly hostile. Don't, don't engage in active warfare. We saw this with one of our avos in a famous episode that I talked about here, Yitzchak Avinu, when he goes to Grar, so the police start up with him and they, they, uh, they, they mess up his wells, and his response is to move. And then he digs more wells, and they fill them in again, and his response again was to simply move. And they perceived in Yitzchak that he was actually stronger than, than them, that nothing that they could do to, could, could uh, crush his spirit and his will, and that even though he's passive and maybe on the surface so you know we would call such behavior wimpy behavior today but it's not at all it's behavior that recognizes that if you fight um, on some kind of equal footing that's it's not going to end well but if you persevere that's the truest kind of strength and that's what the rabbis are trying to teach people to do and some are listening and increasingly many are not i found a very interesting artifact in the roman archives in the modern day um, in fact, it was republished in 1968 with the Haskama from Rav Moshe Feinstein. It was a letter called the Igeris Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that we can't prove it, but absolutely reasonably seems to be an original letter that was written by the Gadol 2000, not quite 2,000 years ago. Uh, it was a letter. Igeris means, the word means letter. Inside included the will of Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Gamliel Hazakin, remember Hillel's grandson. Um, and in there, Rabbi Gamliel writes about, I mean, this is a general letter from Yochanan, but inside it contains this will of Rabbi Gamliel, who complains about two of his wayward students. This is not the Zohar that you were referring to, uh, but this is another letter. His two wayward students in English are referred to as Paul and Peter. And he complains about these students in the letter. He said, you two have gone to Rome. You're posing as good, loyal Jews. When you're nothing of the kind, it's simply an excuse. What you're trying to do is spread your new religion, and it's outrageous. Stop right now. Uh, in that, that's, that's what he writes in the letter. Um, we know that in the letter, they, he describes how they attracted a very small following. I described what we talked about, about Nutzrus. We talked about how they were more like a street gang. Uh, they were a persecuted underground kind of a movement. Um, so this letter describes them as having a small following. And ultimately, the letter says that the wrath of the Caesar Nero, um, who, who will ultimately burn Rome down, uh, will, will get them as well. Um, the, the record seems to indicate, I think I mentioned this too, that um, Peter, who, who was the first pope, and everybody came from him, was the pope. So um, Nero has Peter, Shimon, crucified. 
And Paul is not crucified, I think I said he was. The letter says that Paul was decapitated. Many of their followers are massacred. And we know that that's the first of many massacres. The Romans can't stand the Christians. And as much as Asasonus Yaakov, they don't like the Jews much, they see the Christians as a deviation from the Jews, and they hate them even more. And they'll be, it's the first of many successive massacres. And you'd, thought, you'd have thought that they would have wiped out this nascent Jew, uh, Christian religion, we'll have to talk about when we get to it, how did they survive? How, how did they persevere? And they also managed against the odds to, uh, to overcome this initial persecution. Um, <coughs> Nero, Nero uh, and we're going to see that they're underground until about the 4th century as a persecuted minority. Uh, the Gemara in Giti tells us, and interestingly, you, you heard about the Caesar Nero, one of the famous Caesars in Rome? So the Gemara Gitin tells a story that doesn't correspond with the history books, but we, uh, we, don't, we don't accept the history books, and the Gemaras are certainly authoritative for us. The uh, Nero goes to Jerusalem and realizes that if Hashem would punish anybody, uh, he hears the whole story of Yerushalayim, and if Hashem is vigilant over his own household, over the base of Mikdash, anybody who would, pun- who would destroy the base of Mikdash would be subject to terrible punishment. He realizes he also sees that the Korban is around the corner and he's the Caesar, he does not want to be the Caesar who, over- who presides at the destruction of the Second Temple and he's terrified. Uh, so he flees. According to the Gemara and Gitin, at least, he flees. Um, it's not at odds necessarily. There's a way of reconciling the, the non-Jewish sources and, and there's something mysterious about the end of their account of Nero's life. So it's possible this, that, that, that we can uh, reconcile the two. According to the Jewish version, Nero flees, he converts, and um, he has a replacement named Vespasian, and he's the subject of a very famous story, who eventually um, becomes the Caesar who confronts the Jews. Um, Nero it converts, according to our tradition, he has at least one very famous descendant. Anybody know? Rabbi Mir Balanes is the descendant of Nero the, uh, the Caesar. He was the guy that um, That's where his tradition, the traditional place of, the, of his kever is, is above the Kinneret, south of Tiberia. And that's Rabbi Mir? Like the Rebbe Meir of the Mishnah. He's a son of the convert? <coughs> the descendant of a convert. Oh. Mm-hmm. As many of our great leaders descended from, from wicked converts, or you know, initially wicked people, and they became righteous. Um, in the Gullus, during this period, we still find Jews in Alexandria and Egypt. Another major city is called Sahania in Egypt. Up in Syria is the ancient community of Antioch. Uh, they're Jews in Greece. In Magenza and Bavaria, what would be later be called Mainz in Germany. So the Jews called it Magenza to try to get away from the original pagan roots of the name. Bavaria uh, in Germany also we find Jews. I don't think in history before then we found, we found communities of Jews in Germany. It was one of the early instances and certainly not the last time. Jews are in Rome. There's a whole community of Jews settled in Rome. And at this period, we meet one of the uh, Tanaim. His name is Todos, who uh, the Gemara, who the, the Mishnah cites Darshaning Psukim. He was an authority of the meaning, the inner meanings of different Psukim. So we have different statements of Todos from Rome. So that's where we find Jews at this point all around uh, the world, increasingly spread out. Um, Rabbi Gamaliel dies. It's now about <coughs> 18 years before the Chorban Beis Mikdash, and he's replaced by his son, Rabban Shimon the Gamliel, not the one who's considered one of the three Anvasanim, that will be his grandson. Um, the way to keep track of this, oh, you know what I have to do? I owe you another uh, one of these Xeroxes. Um, I want to get you a list of all the, the one, I Xerox it from Ravari Carmel's book, the one of the um, Tanaim, early Tanaim and Amoraim, to keep track of all these great people. Um, so the Nisim we've met so far, the leaders, the, figure, the figureheads of the Jews, descend from Hillel. Hillel, his son was Shimon, who we didn't hear much about. And then Rabbi Gamliel Hazakim has been the Nasi for many years now, last few, few classes. His son will be Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. His son will be Rabbi Gamliel. And his son is Rabbi Shimon. Got that? So it's Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon. Usually the Rabbi Shimons are called Rabbi Shimon and Gamliel, but there are two of them. And then his son is Rabbi Yehuda Nossi. They, those, they just, that, that list of Gedolim spanned the period of Tanaim. 
But you don't know CE represents the end of the period of time. So if you keep track of that... They're, they're, the, they're the heads for that? Well, part. they're the figureheads. They're not all necessarily the most prominent. Some of them are big Talmud Chachamim. All of them are big Talmud Chachamim, but they're not necessarily the Gadol Ador. And they'll defer... Um, in fact, most of these are not really the prominent Gadol Ador. For example, this from Shippen Gamliel, who's very famous, and I'll tell you some stories about him, and he's, he's, he's certainly a, a great person, great individual. He's one of the Asara Haruge Malchus, one of the Ten Martyrs. Um, but he was overshadowed clearly by his contemporary Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka. No, he's not. What's that? No, he's the next Shimon ben Yamah. You know that? I just said now, he's not one of the others. He's not the one I just referred to as, as one of the three Abba's son. That's his grandson. His eponymous grandson. Eponymous means has the same name. <laughs> um, or eponymous pronounced. Uh, but here's the first Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, who's a very interesting figure. He is well known too. He becomes the Nasi um, for the next many years before the Chorban. He juggles at the Simchas Beis Shoeva. The Gemara describes in very colorful detail the celebrations on the Simchas Beis Shoeva that take place during the Cholamoy uh, days of Sukkot. He was the one who knew how to juggle eight avukot, torches of fire. Can you do that? No, don't try it at home, kids. I know people can, but it's pretty pretty impressive. Anyway, you don't usually expect a guttle, a nasi, to be able to do such a thing, but when it came to serving a sham and celebrating, that was certainly not, not hard for him to do. He also had mastered a very dangerous art. He is cited in the Gemara alone as knowing how to do kida, which is described as an incredibly complex handstand. Be and, and Levi, we're going to meet many generations now, Levi later tried to do it and went lame. He became physically deformed after trying Kida. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel knew how to do it effectively. As I said, he is not the undisputed Gadol Hador in all matters. Uh, his father was, Rabbi Gamliel and Nasi, but, but not Rabbi Shimon. Uh, as I said, he's overshadowed by Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai. Um, Right, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he had, he'd learned from Hillel and Shammai, so he was the next recipient of the Masoira. Whereas Rabbi Shimon only received the Masoira from his father, so it wasn't the same. But there's incredible harmony between, between Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Um, like in the period of the Zugos, even though they're not equal on equal footing, and really only Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is really the Gadol, but they were known, one of their practices would be to darshan together in public. They would sit, for example, near what was called the Shar Ashpos, which today we call Dung Gate, but it was probably in a different location than today's Dung Gate. Not far, though, from the uh, south side of the temple area, Shar Ashpot, and they would sit together where people would congregate and ask them Shailas. That was a later name, but there's a, there's an ancient name for the same general for the same general area. It was not the same place that we have today. Charge boat. That's what it was called back then. The Gemara describes that. Um, that was a place where they, they they got rid of the refuge from the city, and then later on that took on extra meaning, as you as you correctly remember. Um, they also went, there's a new Torah center in the world, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, called Yavna. Um, Yavna that's, that's uh, sort of inland of Ashdod on the south, um, on the southwestern side of Eretz Yisrael, and they go down to the new base Medrash in Yavna, and they, um, they also darshan down there, and their, their, their presence is felt. Now, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakeh, we're going to be hearing a lot about. He, he also has Arichus Yamin. He lives long, important years, and uh, he'll survive the Chorban Beis and Mikdash. So I'm not doing a total assessment of his personality, but I do. I, he deserves a little bit of focus right now. We know that um, in the Sifri, we learn that uh, he was one of the five who lived 150 years. Um, who are the other four? Quick reminder. 120 years. Moshe. Rabbi Kiva, you're jumping to the end. We're trying to go in order. Moshe, Ezra. Hillel, Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, and then finally, um, yeah, Rabbi Kiva. Um, there are other Gedolim who live long lives, and they parallel, and, you, and, and Chazal make connections between them. Do you know who lived 133 years? So Rivka Imenu and Kahas. Kahas uh, ben Levi, um, who lived 137 years? Levi, very good. And his descendant, Amram. 
110 years. Uh, what's that? Yosef Atzadik and his descendant, Yoshua bin Nun. Uh, I found this very, last summer we went in one evening to both of their kfarim. We went to Yoshua bin Nun in Chares uh, and, uh, and Yosef in Shechem. Um, 52 years, this is a good history review. Who lived both 50, 52 years around the same period in history? I know you will. I, but I won't, I, if I give you one, you'll definitely get the other. Shlomo, Kola Kavodin, who's the other one? I mean, don't look 70. No, no, no. I know, don't look 70. Uh, Shmuel and Avi. Shmuel. Shmuel and, 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 uh, and Shlomo both lived 52 years. So these are all. Shmuel and Shlomo. Shmuel and Shlomo, whose names sound familiar. You can darshan all this, there are, there are connections to be made. The Mishnah tells us, the Mishnah that we just talked about in Gemara, but I didn't plan this. The Mishnah tells us that as a young man, before he was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he darshaned and he had a, he had a very intriguing uh, position on Dina Nefashos in the Mishnah. He said, when we cross-examine and we interrogate the witnesses, we don't just ask them the classic hakiros the, to figure out the time and place that the crime took place. We don't even rest with the Drishos talking about material evidence. We even open up, and this is against the standard position, we even ask the witnesses to tell us about immaterial evidence, such as? The color of the stem. Like Not the color, the color. Which, which stem of which fig of which tree the crime took place by. And meaning he, he tried to find any reason that the witnesses didn't quite do proper, uh, didn't give proper testimony and their testimony didn't quite align one with the other and he would throw away the case. It's not the halacha, but it was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's position. Yeah. Excellent. So the Gemara in Sanhedrin says that's why when he, this is, we meet him now as a prominent gadol near the latter part of his life. This Mishnah is taught, it's fantastic, good question, Aaron, because it's exactly what bothers the Gemara in Sanhedrin until it works out a chronology. It says that's why he was just Ben Zakkai at the beginning of his career many years earlier when they still were doing uh, Dina Nefashos. So, Baruch Shekivan, the mom is exactly the Gemara's issue. Wait, is that why the American legal system gets them Because the American legal system does that too. They check under the uh, which which fig tree? No, but they'll be they'll be as like exacting well, yeah, and trying exactly to figure things out. Try to be as, as make the. I, I can't say that that's the source, but it's such an unlike such an unlikely and an uncommon kind of a phenomenon. I wouldn't be surprised if they get it one one you know they get the idea from here. The. Um, it's like innocent to proven guilty is also jurist, and then later. Oh, for sure, there are all kinds of jurist <laughs> basic ideas in Jewish prudence that they derive from, from our system. I mean, ours is the most elaborate le um, judicial system in the, in, the, in the ancient world, so it makes sense that it's a source of much, much of what we do today. <coughs> um, in the Gemara Baba Basra, we know that he learned that the, his life broke down into three sections. He learned for 40 years, um, the last 15 of which he was directly a student of Hillel. Earlier he learned from Shammai. Uh, until he completely mastered the Messiah, the whole tradition. Um, he went to work for a period. His last 40 years, he was the undisputed leader of the, of the nation. Uh, he was generally based in Yavne, but the, we understand also that he had a special base team in a place called Ror Chayil. Uh, and we also know that he, he, was, he, would, he would, when times were right, he would sit in the shade by the base of Mikdash, uh, and it's okay to sit in the shade of the base of Mikdash because there's no Isar Hana getting benefit from the base of Mikdash um, in, in, um, in, any, in, in any sense. It was not called direct Hana. Um, here's a little bit about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. By the way, we learned about Gedolim, and we think we kind of put this, and we're going to be learning now, we're coming to a very exciting time in history, even though the times are very bad. But the Gedolim are very great and very inspiring. And sometimes their greatness, we talked about this last week also, is sometimes rendered in such extreme ways we think, I can't do this. And maybe some of these things are true. They seem like way beyond where we're holding. But I think there's certain stories, certain ideas you can take from Gedolim. You think, I mean, Mer Merkes was just telling me that he um, heard a story of, from Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, who used to, um, when he finished washing his hands, would take the clee and fill it with water for the next guy. And Mayor thought, 
I could do that. There's a certain things you hear about these gedolim that are absolutely attainable. And we should hear, we should listen to stories with this in mind. Don't dismiss it just because he's a gadol. Well, that's what he did. I don't have to do this. Okay, some of these things I would admit, though, are, are a very tall order for some of us, but I would still claim that we, we, we maybe at one point in our lives can achieve this. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Gemara tells us, never spoke one sichas chuli. Meaning, he never, had, he never engaged in idle banter, no idle discussion. Everything he talked about was Torah. For his entire for his entire life. Right. He was a very holy individual. And he was conscious that just like a Kaddish Baruch who uses words and his words create worlds, humans have the similar capacity. So everything he talked about has substance and consequence. <coughs> he didn't care who won the ball game. Um, he the Gemara says, never walked Dalit Amos, four Amos without Torah or Tfilin. Always wearing tefillin, always thinking or speaking Divrei Torah. He always attributed his learning, meaning whenever he taught an idea, he always told you where he got it from, who was the author, who's the source. Um, in a base medrash, he never slept. Uh, what's called Shainas Arai or Shainas Keva, certainly. He never even took a little nap. Um, not even in the middle of a shear. Can you imagine somebody not taking a nap in the middle of a shear? No. Okay. Uh, right. Um, he also never stopped learning, uh, and he was one of the individuals that you could approach him and ask him to daven for rain, and it went very well. If there was a drought, you knew who to go to. Um, the Gemara says, nobody ever <coughs> beat him to the base medrash in the morning, and nobody ever stayed after him in the evening, which is a special schluss. A couple of, a couple of you are close to that, uh, to be able to get, you know, get, getting here first. I, I, what, I think I beat Aaron Ashida the other day, and I said, ha! Gotcha, gotcha. But it's a, it's a big deal to be there. By the way, there's a halacha about this too. You should strive to be among the first ten in shul and among the last ten to leave along the same lines. Anyway, nobody beat Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. His enthusiasm, what we call zrizim, zrizus, zrizus, zrizim, makim in the mitzvah, uh, was, was, was hard to compete with. Um, he has many, many great talmidim. Um, among his Talmudim, we've met a lot of them. We met last week Rabbi Chanina ben Dosa, remember with all of his miracles. We met Rabbi Nechunia ben Akana with his Sefer Abahir, the, the Kabbalistic work. Um, Rabbi Akiva, as a young man, also learned with him. But Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and I refer you to the second, really the entire second chapter of Pirkei Avos, is an account of his five famous prestigious students, some of whom we're going to spend a lot of time with. Actually, the truth is, is um, Two out of five of them are, are, are going to stay with us for a long time. The other three are important, but two, two are, are particularly prominent, and I'm going to introduce them to you as well right now. One is named Rebbe Eliezer ben Herkinus, sometimes referred to as Rebbe Eliezer Hagadol. There are a few Rebbe Eliezer's in the Gemara, but he's the great. He's the great Rebbe Eliezer. Uh, Say it again? No, Herkinus was a common Greek name, and it's all Greek to me. And was they, 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 these names proliferated in those days. Uh, no, he was not related to the Hasmonean family. Um, he, is, he is Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkinus, who's described in the Mishnah Perkyavos as a bor sud she'en ma'abitriba. He is a, one of these containers that, uh, that is able to uh, absorb a huge amount of liquid and never loses a drop. That's how his memory is described. It was not an idea that he would hear that he would ever forget. But he didn't always, he didn't start out that way. In fact, the backstory to Rabbi Eliezer ben, uh, ben Herkin is very interesting. It's a, it's a Bryson Abos Rabinasan. It used to be as an ignoramus, he was an Amhaaretz who, who was working for his father as a farmer. As, his father had very difficult rocky terrain, and his job was to plow the terrain, which took a long time, not an easy job. And as he would do it, the Bryson tells us, he would go about his work crying. And one day his father asked him, why are you crying? And he, <laughs> the father was suspicious. He thought, maybe you don't like all this hard work. And Rebbe Ezra explained, no, I really want to learn Tyra. And because I'm working so hard, I have no opportunity to, to learn. So his father said, you know what, you're 28 years old, although some say he was 22, year old, 22, year, 22 years old, he said, at this point, it's too late for you. Your job, you should marry, have children, 
Send your children to learn. But your ship has sailed already, Eliezer. Uh, was it 28 and very old back then? Interesting question. Um, well, given the fact that his Rebbe is 120 when he dies, uh, it varied. It varied. But at that time, this several of the Gedolim achieved, many of the Gedolim achieved Arich Lusyamim, and even though it's not a hard, fast rule, even though it's not a hard, fast rule, but we see that there's something of a correlation between greatness in Torah and righteousness and long life. A real lives a long life, for example. Anyway, 22 and some say 28, uh, he's plowing away, and his father's words do nothing to appease him, and he continues to cry. He genuinely wants to learn Torah. And, um, well, the natural thing happened under the circumstances. <laughs> he got a visit from why, Eliyahu Anavi, of course. And Eliyahu comes to him and he asks him, why are you crying? And he explains his predicament. And Eliyahu says, I want you to go on a, on a journey for me. I want you to go visit in Yerushalayim a great man by the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and seek him out and see if he'll take you on as a student. And uh, Rabbi Yezer comes to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and he's sitting in the back and Rabbi Yochanan notices him because he's the one in the back, guess what, crying. He's still crying. He's still upset by his, his portion of the world. And Rabbi Yochanan says, come, you'll learn Torah by me. When he, when he sees how genuine and sincere uh, Rabbi Eliezer is in his desire to learn Torah. Um, years pass, and Rabbi Eliezer's brothers are resentful. Where'd their brother go? He's, you know, he's left, left town and left them with the hard work of uh, tilling this difficult land. And they tell their father, you know, Dad, Eliezer's really a bum. You should disinherit him. Look what he's done to us. He's abandoned us. And, and Hyrcanus, the father, agrees. And he wants to seek out. He hears that he knows his son is Eliezer went, went to Yushalayim. He doesn't know much more than that. And he goes to seek out his son, Eliezer, in Yushalayim to disinherit him and to, you know, to slap him across the face. And he, he goes to Yushalayim and he finds the Gadol Ador of Yochanan bin Zakkai sitting among the Gedola Yisrael, among the great sages. And they're all surrounding a figure, and they're begging this figure, please darshan Torah for us. And the figure's refusing, and finally the man relents, and he starts expounding ideas, but it's not just your average garden variety Torah. He expounds ideas, he's mechadish kiddushim, he says new novel teachings that have never been heard before. As he's darshaning, his, the, the Bryce describes his face beamed with light that looked like the light emanating from Moshe Rabbeinu's face. And when he finishes darshaning, the Gadol Hador of Yochanan ben Zakkai goes over to him personally, kisses him, and says, your wisdom, your chokhmah, is the purest kind of emes. And Hyrcanus is sitting in the back row watching the whole display, and he says to the people next to him, says, who is that guy? And the people say, oh, that's your son, Eliezer. How do they recognize I don't know. They somehow knew. Uh, the uh, father, the end of the story, this is one of those, they live happily ever after, at least not everybody, but most of them. The father disinherits all the other sons and gave everything to Rebbe Yezer, who indeed becomes a gadol in his own right, and is a gadol. Um, so much so, the Mishnah describes him, if all the Chachamim were in one side of the scale, um, and you put Rebbe Yezer in the other one, he would outweigh them in the other one. He's called Sinai, Sinai. He's Bucky Bechol Chadre Taira, an expert in all the chambers of Taira who never forgets anything, as we described earlier. Um, we're going to meet a lot. We're going to meet the, uh, many of the other five. Uh, maybe the, the, the other really very famous name is Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah. The great Rabbi Yeshua of the Mishnahs. We'll hear a lot about him. Uh, I'll say very briefly about Rabbi Yeshua. Um, at the beginning of his life, we, we know that his mother while she was pregnant with him, would go around to every base medrash in town and ask all of the chachamim to daven that her baby would be a chacham too, and they did. And uh, he came out very well. Um, once he was born, she put his crib in the base medrash and never moved it. So his whole life was absorbing, as it were, the great words of the chachamim all around him. And I guess his crying didn't bother them. The Gemara doesn't comment on that one. Um, we meet also Rabbi Yossi Cohen, one of the five students, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who's described as a chassid. The word, by the way, chassid, 
now we associate with the Hasidic movement from the 18th century. But the word, the, the term Hasid means a very high level tzaddik. Um, Rabbi Shimon ben Nisanel is described as a Yirechait, somebody who feared sin. And the fifth of the students is Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, who's one of the more intriguing figures in history. I'm going to introduce him now. We're going to see more on him later. By the way, these. Take, take it, keep track, even though there are a lot of Chachamim that are emerging now, um, they come together to paint a very important portrait of life in this, in this time, and there are a lot of critical stories that many of them are going to play a central role in that shape a lot of what we think of in, 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 in Chazal and Torah Judaism as we know it. Uh, again, the big names to keep track of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Yezra Agado, Rabbi Yeshua, uh, Rabbi Lazar ben Arach is described as a Ma'ayan HaMisgaber. He's an overflowing stream of water. Um, he's capable of explaining the most complex of concept, concepts. So the same Mishnah that I was quoting earlier says that if all the Chachamim, including Rebbe Yezer, were in one side of the scale, and you put Rebbe Elazar ben Arach alone in the other scale, he would outweigh them specifically in areas of Svara. His reason, his, his capacity for just pure human logic was unsurpassed. Karifus, he had sharp analysis, and pilpul, the ability again to analyze a certain kind of analysis. One of the things that these great students could do, and they're not the first in history, but we find them doing a lot of it in this, in this very fraught period. Again, remember, keep the whole historical background. We're inching closer to Chorban Beis Mikdash. Politically, things are a mess. Jews are becoming increasingly violent, vigilant. They're on, they're, they're, there's rebellion left and right. And all in the back, all while this is happening in the background, you have these gedolim who are learning on this incredibly high level. And among the things that they're learning, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach was known to darshan nothing less than the Maisim Merkava. Maisim Merkava being the divine chariot. He darshan it with his Rebbe, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. As they darshaned, this is imagine darshaning the deepest levels of Kabbalah. Fire descends from heaven. As they darshan, the trees break out in a spontaneous song. They sing what's called Parakshira. Familiar with Parakshira? Uh, that was the, the whole world came alive. Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Yossi, two of the other students, witnessed the whole display. And so, well, they also did the logical thing under the circumstances. They started darshaning the Maisa because they could as well. Um, even without Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and when they start darshaning the Maisim Merkava, which is again learning the highest mystical ideas, angels, the Malachi Asharis, start gathering around, uh, and eventually their Rebbe hears them, Rabbi Yochanan hears them, and he praises them as well. Um, there were few select others in history who had the ability to darshan the Maisim Merkava, among them famously, Rabbi Akiva. He used to do this before Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai as well. Um, and another Gadol, Rabbi Hanani ben Chachinai, would do it before Rabbi Akiva. Um, we know that later on, the Yerushalmi tells us that increasing sin makes, the, makes people stop this practice. We don't do this now, at least nobody I know uh, has, has done this um, since this period, because the fact that we are on a lower level in sin, um, we're not clean enough spiritually, and Darshan the Maisim Covenant becomes a very dangerous experience. Among other reasons, um, if you're physically not pure, meaning you lack the ashes of the paraduma, you could, if you darshan, if you go into the pardes and you darshan this area of, of mysticism, it could endanger the entire existence of the world. Uh, we're going to talk about the pardes soon enough when four went into the pardes, but I'm a little ahead of myself right now. Well, you'll have to stay tuned. Um, some of you are coming for part of the class, which is your prerogative. You know, this is the afternoon and you do what you do. But um, if you continue to do that, you will almost certainly be missing some of the gems of history. Uh, and, you know, I, you see that I, just, I try to give over as much as I can in the, in the classes. So I'm encouraging you as best you can to get here and try to get all of this because it makes so much more sense when you see the whole picture. What are you going to say, Arya? Yeah, yeah, I was wondering, yeah, how does that endanger the world? <laughs> the wrong person doing it in the, under the wrong circumstances, impure, you're tampering with godless, with great things. A person, just like a wet person touching the electrical wires, endangers not just himself, but everybody around the whole place can, can burst out in flames. So too, that's, that's a similar kind of explosive, flammable situation. Uh, a man named Abuya, 
who was not the god, not a gadol, but he was a sage, certainly, Rabbi Buya, has a son. And at the bris of his son, and he names his son Elisha, at the bris, uh, in attendance are some of the gadolim, including Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. And um, when the ceremony is over, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua uh, leave and they go into the next room because they, they want a darshan. You know, it's time to go learn in darshan uh, the deep secrets of the Torah. And of course, as they do, a fire from heaven descends and surrounds them. And Abuya peeks into the room and he sees this display. And he's never seen anything like this before. And he says, if this is the power of Torah, I want my son to have this portion in his life. That he should have this power. I'm designating my son for a life of Torah. And he does. The Chazal cite this as an early reason. Do you know who his son is? Did you catch this? His son is Elisha ben Abuya, who's going to be one of the most difficult figures to understand in all of history. His son does become one of the greatest sages of all times, and simultaneously one of the one of the most vile, heretical villains of all time as well. He's what's called Acher, right? And we're going to hear about him. And Chazal cite this as, and, and among other reasons why, because from the outset, the reasons that he went to learn were lolishma, were not, were not pure, holy reasons, uh, so that, that it didn't end well for Elisha ben Aboya. And his Torah became tainted. Um, <clears throat> as I said, increasing civil strife, sinas chinam, gratuitous hatred will emerge, there'll be explicit conflicts and murders, the Gemara Yuma goes into this, there's a group now, I talked about the various sectarian groups that exist. There's a group known as, the, either they're called the Sikarim, or an alternate name is the Sikrikim. They're named after the Sika knife that the Romans, in the, that, was, that was commonly found in the Roman Empire. Um, they, their practice, they would go into the marketplace hiding under their cloaks, knives, daggers, and they went into the middle of a crowd and sometimes randomly murdered. Sort of like terrorists, no? That's what terrorists do. They instill terror into the population. You never know where they were going to strike. They were often undetected. Often they did it for money. Sometimes it was just to terrorize. Anti-Roman, anti-Jewish, anti-Greek. People were fighting with one another. Um, they attacked especially different things. In other words, they were, they were wicked people who, again, would do it for money. Um, sometimes people from the different warring factions that have described these different factions all at war with one another would pay them to go make mischief. Yeah, wasn't there overarching or like under yeah, overarching goal to like get the people to fight the Romans? For sure. That sometimes that was the motivation. Right, to get people riled up. But okay, there are different motivations. If you were Shomroni, you wanted to you wanted to get at the Jews and terrorize them. Uh some of them are Jewish and some of them are not. And there's no Sanhedrin to prosecute anymore as the Sanhedrin moved into exile, into, into Hanus. So the, the times, as we said, are slipping into increasing anarchy. The Romans respond. They'll go on rampages. There'll be massacres. There'll be random murders. There'll be rape. Nowhere, is, nowhere are Jews finding safety. Um, the elements that we find in the Klala, in the uh, curse, are increasingly evident in the world. Berenike, you remember one of the five children of the first Agrippus, Agrippus I, who had all those failed marriages back in Rome, but she becomes an advocate of the Jews. She cares deeply about the Jews. She's, got, she's a person with political stature, stature, and she appeals to the cruel Nitziv, and this time the, the Nitziv, the local governor, is a fellow named Flicus, and she appeals to him on the behalf of the Jews, and his response to her is to dismiss her. He actually makes fun of her. She walked in the Heichal barefoot, that's what Jews did. You didn't go with shoes on. Shalas Nalcha, you know, the, the Admas Kodeshi, it's holy, it's holy land. And he made fun of the uh, Jewish practice, even though she was just keeping the halacha. Her brother, Agrippus II, is also a political power. He, as regent, comes to Jerusalem. And Berenike comes to him, and followed by the people, she begs him, please help the Jewish, the Jewish situation is increasingly impossible. You have to help. And... Um, at this point, he still cares about the Jews, um, and people cry, cry to him. Um, but at one point, they call for a revolt against the Romans. 
And now Agrippus II finds himself in a quandary because on the one hand he cares about the Jews, on the other hand he cares about his job, and the second wins wins in his sympathies. Um, and he wants the Rome, he wants to maintain his power. So now he decides to crush this young group of Jewish rebels, uh, and it becomes an all-out war. They go, the, the surviving rebels go and burn down his quarters, his palace in Jerusalem. Um, and he goes back and kills more of them. As this, all this is taking place, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai continue to, and, and, and the Chachamim oppose the fighting, but they're ignored. Um, and so the Chachamim retreat to the base Medrash, and they defend Klal Yisrael by continuing to learn Torah. Agrippus goes, goes and he rebuilds his palace in Upper Jerusalem. Probably, prob- almost certainly, the place where he builds pal- the, his palace is where we went together a few weeks ago in what's today called the David Tower Museum. That area, which was always the capital, was probably hit the site of his upper palace. Um, it's where the old Hashmonaite palace was. And he <laughs> has a place, and if you can picture that extraordinary view that we had, maybe it was there, maybe it was nearby, where he's also <laughs> looking down into the... Can you picture this? Who's there? Who was there with, with, with we, we stood there, right? Looking down into Harabais itself, he looked down brazenly, arrogantly, looking at the Harabais, and he watched them during the Korbanos, he watched them, um, he enjoyed the spectacle. Now, technically, there's no prohibition in watching, since cold, what we hear and what we see are not a problem of Me'ila. Do you know there's a Torah prohibition called Me'ila? You're not allowed to use something holy for your own purpose, for your own benefit, your own gain. But if you just watch something or you, you, you hear something, you hear the music, let's say, of the Levim, that's not technically a prohibition. Um, the one sense that there is Megillah, the holiest of the senses, smell. smell. Not only the smell, but, but vision, and, vision and hearing are okay. Um, but the Jews understand they're machmir and they put up curtains. They don't want this unholy figure, Agrippus II, looking. Um, he figures that they are spies... And, and he tries to spy on them. Um, he is against the Jews. The Jews build a wall to block him out. Uh, he tries to knock it down. The Jews appeal to the Caesar in Rome. They win rights to keep the wall. Uh, and this is an ongoing conflict. And it's not just in Judea. We find Jews fighting in Syria, up in Aram. Um, they, in all the Galios, all the, most of the diasporas, with the exception of Bavel, Bavel's not, but the Jews of Bavel have been, have been remember Chachinai and Chanilai, they, they, they were suppressed earlier, so there's not a vibrant Jewish population in Bavel at this time. It's a very low period for Klal Yisrael, certainly politically and militarily. Uh, the Mishnah Sota tells us three years before the Chorban Beis Mikdash, Chazal make an additional decree. There used to be a practice. Brides used to wear these beautiful golden crowns at their weddings with Jerusalem engraved on the crowns, and they don't do that anymore. Um, grooms used to wear a special golden talus, and they don't do that either. And as we round down towards the towards the Chorban, the Jewish enemies, the last thing that I mentioned for today, the Jewish enemies start to take advantage of our increasing weakness. They do that. They cut us when we're down, like Amalek. So we find at this point the Kutim, the Shomronim, um, start to attack us. This is very famous. The Jews had a system where we got the word of the calendar out to the diaspora by way of the Masuos. The Masua here went out from Har Mishcha, the Mount of Olives, to Sartib and Grafina, and that's the way people knew that people knew when the new month took place. But the Kutim come to sabotage the whole process, and they start lighting fires when it's not the new month. And so Chazal declare Chodesh now no longer by fires. They send out a, a personal shaliach, a messenger from Yerushalayim. But there's one direct result that this leads to is you have an ambiguous date, maybe in far diasporas, they won't get word on time. Hence, the new practice of having Yom Tov Sheni Shalgalios. So blame the Kutim, if you, if you must, uh, for, for this whole procedure that, that results in a doubtful day of Yantif, that results in two days of Yantif for the Jews of the diaspora. We know that the Baitusim, this other group, this other uh, sect, they deceived Chazal in giving testimony at the new month. And so the Chazal changed the practice. Now they only accept testimony from people that they know, called the Hamakirin. 
the tzedukim, never to miss an opportunity to get Chazal. They challenged Chazal's authority openly in all areas of halacha. They mocked, they teased Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, they have lots of issues. They don't like, they, they, they all, dealing with the korbanos, they, they, they start mocking because many of these are the Rabbanan. You remember the tzedukim say they only accept the Torah. Um, they also say that the holiday of Shavuos is not a real holiday. They cite that the only day of Shavuos is Mimachras uh, Shabbos, always on Sunday, six, six, uh, seven weeks after uh, the Sunday after Pesach. And finally, the Nodstrim, the Christians, uh, tenacious bunch, they spread their New Testament and they establish they want to break away from the Jewish people. You remember they, they decide they're no longer connected with the Jews as they turn to the pagan world. They, instead of Shabbos, they, they fix a new holy day on Sunday. Sunday becomes their holy day. Um, we, we change our practice. There used to be people called Anshe Maimed who fasted all week long. And from this point on, the Anshe Maimed don't fast on Sunday. They don't want to start uh, to kindle the anger of the, of, the, of the Christians. And so they avoid that. Um, tomorrow, the Zerash a very important class. We're going to talk about the times leading up to the Korban Beis HaMikdash.